0: The first citywide wireless phone network in the world was built in Japan. It began its life in Tokyo in 1979 before expanding to cover the whole of the country over the following five years. Denmark, Finland, Norway, and Sweden were the next to get this first generation wireless phone service in 1981, followed by the city of Chicago in 1983, and locations throughout the UK, Mexico, and Canada in the mid 1980s. The main distinction between that first generation wireless phone network and the second generation network that followed was the nature of the signal that was utilized. The first was analog, and the second was digital. And that changeover allowed the new system to become more efficient than its predecessor, and allowed for the introduction of rudimentary data services over those wireless signals, like SMS text messages, followed by picture messages and multimedia messages. This second-generation service, which was based on the GSM standard, got its initial toehold in Finland in 1991, And it took off pretty quickly, spreading out around the world from there as its data transfer speed, 50 kilobits per second as a maximum theoretical ceiling, but more like 40 kilobits per second in practice, was top notch for the technology available at the time. The GPRS, or General Packet Radio Service, upgrade to that standard made this 2G data service more consistent and reliable, and a further upgrade, sometimes called 2.75G wireless, but more popularly known as EDGE, increased transfer speeds by allowing each symbol sent wirelessly to contain three bits instead of just one. So more info per chunk of data transmitted. That upgrade was deployed across GSM networks beginning in 2003, and versions of it expanded worldwide shortly thereafter. Things changed pretty dramatically when reliable third generation, or 3G, wireless phone services were implemented, but it took a while for them to find their footing. As the standard fractured a few times, and governing bodies and the companies behind developing it couldn't agree on a definition for it. What should it be able to do? How fast would a signal need to be, both at the maximum and on average, to count as a 3G signal? So it took some time before 3G finally arrived and replaced the 2G edge network. But a watershed moment for the standard occurred in 2008 with the release of the iPhone 3G, so named because it utilized this new, far speedier, and more media-capable network. Other phones were already using this service, of course, but the iPhone was the media darling of the phone world and represented a shift in form factor that arguably used the network to greater effect than its competitors at the time. Rather than only being able to trickle bits of data from edge networks, and mostly being Wi-Fi reliant, as was the case with its predecessor, the iPhone 3G was able to download things like apps, which were introduced with this model. The App Store did not exist before this version hit the shelves. And videos straight from the phone network, no Wi-Fi required. And that was a pretty big deal at the time. For comparison, the most popular phone on the market at that moment was the Motorola Razer, a not-so-great-but-unique-looking feature phone that had a terrible screen that wasn't touch-sensitive and which still had buttons like a normal phone. It also flipped open like most phones at the time. This was an era before everyone had a powerful computer in their pocket when most people still considered their phones to be just phones and used them accordingly. If you look at a lineup of what was popular back then, it's easy to see why the iPhone stood out, and why most phones did not have much use for this faster, more media-capable network quite yet. 3G offered average data rates of 2 megabits per second for people standing still, and around 350 kilobits per second for folks in moving vehicles. Which compared to the 2G networks, 40 kilobits per second, that is a pretty solid upgrade. That's between 10 To 50 times faster than the previous generation's network. The 3G service had an incremental upgrade after a few years as well, which was called High Speed Packet Access, or HSPA. And that was followed by another upgrade called HSPA Plus, which was released in a limited way in late 2008 and hit networks worldwide in 2010. That final upgraded version of 3G allowed for average download rates of about 42 megabits per second, 21 times that of the original 3G, which again was itself 10 to 50 times faster than the best 2G network. Today's standard, for most people who are not living in very remote areas whose devices still run on variations of the 3G and edge networks that are widespread in the gaps between more modern systems, most folks use some flavor of 4G, or fourth generation wireless service, which allows us to download apps and stream music and videos and load entire media heavy websites pretty quickly. It allows us to Skype or FaceTime with friends and things like that. Much of what we use our smartphones for today was enabled by the advent of 4G. There are a lot of pixels on modern phone screens and a lot of heft to modern music files. And shuffling all that data around takes great big invisible data pipes in the sky. So a huge chunk of our basic everyday habits and needs revolve around the capabilities of this 4G network, which is still relatively new. If you've ever taken a trip to a more rural part of your country and had your phone drop down to 3G speeds, you'll know what I'm talking about here. Instagram might load but it'll probably take a full 30 seconds to display each photo, and videos probably won't load at all. The mobile internet experience is wildly different, depending on the network that you have available. 3G gave the world a taste of what the mobile web could be, and 4G delivered on that promise in most ways, including ways we didn't really see coming, like replacing actual phone calls with telephony calls phone calls that are carried on the internet instead of over typical phone protocols because it's often more efficient and cheap to deliver them that way. 4G standards were approved in 2008, the same year the iPhone 3G hit shelves, but those standards, which were far higher than 3G, a minimum of 100 megabits per second for phones and one gigabit Per second for mobile hotspots. Those were unattainable by contemporary technologies, so they had a standard that they were aiming for, but no way to achieve it in the foreseeable future. As a consequence, service providers began to ask regulators if they could use the 4G label on services that didn't quite meet those standards, but which were sufficiently better than existing 3G services that differentiation of some kind seemed appropriate. So they still couldn't hit proper 4G, but they could achieve something between 3G and 4G, and thus wanted to round up and use the 4G label for marketing purposes. A standard called LTE gave them... An inroad to this, as it was a sort of developmental pipeline that was based on older Edge and HSPA technologies, but essentially refined them until they worked better, until they sparkled. It made them much more efficient and effective, amping their capabilities above the newer, potentially more powerful, but not yet actually more powerful, modern technology that it was suspected would one day help them achieve true 4G capabilities. The regulatory bodies said, okay, that's fine, let's make it happen, and service providers worldwide began to call this not-quite-4G service 4G, or in some cases, 4G LTE. And to be clear, this is not 4G as they imagined it happening when they defined that standard back in 2008, but it's not terrible, it's just not revolutionary. It's nothing crazy new, and it's not the product of dazzling new technology. It's the product of iterative upgrades to older technology and better systems for using those technologies, for applying them in the real world to get better results. And it's the consequence of a marketing push by phone networks that wanted something new to help them goose sales of more phones and other devices. What I want to talk about today is the next step in the mobile data transmission Pipeline, A standard called 5G that, until recently, was considered to be a bit like virtual reality and autonomous cars, always 5 or 10 years away, no matter what year you happen to live in. Because of some very recent advances, though, we may see this new standard actually become available in devices that exist in real life on shelves sooner than we thought. And it may even prove to be a revolutionary upgrade rather than just more Marketing hype. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from CNET and it's entitled Qualcomm's New Chips Fix a Major Problem for 5G Phones. As has been the case with each preceding generation of wireless data service, 5G has been in the works for a long time, and rough standards for it were dreamed up years ago. Unfortunately, though, this time around, the developers working on its components ran up against some hard limitations in the methods and systems they were using. It's still possible to squeeze more speed and bandwidth out of existing technologies, the ones being used for 4G. But at a certain point with any technology, you kind of need some new approach. Something that will enable a revolution rather than just more evolution. The tech behind today's conception of 5G, one that is backed by an understanding of how it can be done rather than just theoretical numbers we'd like to maybe hit somehow, is predicated on using higher frequency radio waves than the ones that are currently being used for communication purposes. If you think about radio waves, with their up and down curves, the number of complete curve cycles you can fit within a fixed space determines its frequency. So a smaller wavelength equals a higher frequency because it can bend up and down more times than more stretched out curves, the length of the wave, the wavelength being smaller. The entirety of the radio spectrum is broken up into bands, each of which we've discovered is useful for different things. The whole of the radio frequency is a band that extends from 30 hertz to 300 gigahertz, and one hertz is one cycle per second, so that band is made up of pretty low, pretty stretched out signals as far as wavelengths go. For context, microwaves, fall within that same band from 300 hertz to 300 gigahertz and just above that we get into the visible wave spectrum starting with far infrared at just over 300 gigahertz all the way up to near ultraviolet which weighs in at three petahertz and one petahertz is one quadrillion hertz and a quadrillion is a one with 15 zeros But most of that is not super important to understand the changes taking place between 4G communication and 5G communication. What's important here is that most wireless signals in our phone systems up till this point have been within one range, and this new proposed upgrade will take us into a higher frequency, meaning smaller waves, more complete up and down ripples sent each second, which means potentially... A lot more information shuttled from point A to point B, which, I mean, is pretty great, right? And it kind of makes you wonder if we've known about this spectrum all along, that realm of science, that knowledge of radio waves is not exactly new. Why haven't we been using it this whole time? Well, part of the issue is that when you decrease the size of these waves, make each ripple smaller, so you can deliver more of them within the same period of time, you also make them a lot more frail. Longer wavelengths like those used with 4G phone services can pass through most trees and walls and people without blocking the signal or without distorting it too badly. These smaller wavelengths, which are called millimeter waves, are dense with information carrying potential but weak as hell. They will bounce right off a wall. They will get chopped to bits by the leaves on a tree that are rustling in the wind. They won't even know what to do if you step in front of them. In other words, Although waves of this kind, which are contained in the extremely high-frequency band of radio waves, could be super useful, we've never been quite certain how to overcome their countless flaws. If we could ever do that, they could potentially change a whole lot about what we could do with our technologies. But being able to transmit from antenna to phone, or antenna to router, is kind of important. If you want something like this to be functional in the real world. So up until recently, this use case for this radio frequency band has been a maybe someday possibility, just over the horizon, but probably not soon. It's an interesting bit of knowledge, but probably not practical in the near future. This is where Qualcomm's new chips enter the picture. As recently as 2017, Qualcomm had functioning 5G hardware that could send a very strong wireless signal from one place to another, and which could do so while moving. Unfortunately, this hardware was massive. I will link to a YouTube video showing this thing in the show notes. Basically, if you pictured the carts that public schools use to shuffle around overhead projectors and things like that, or at least they did back when I was in school, this device in this video had to be pushed around on that kind of cart by a guy who didn't look super happy about it. And the hardware itself took up both top and bottom shelf, filling them to the brim. It's the size of a mid-90s desktop computer if you also include the bulky printer and giant CRT monitor and a bunch of other random generic boxes full of who knows what. It's nowhere near the size it would need to be to fit inside a laptop, much less a smartphone. Then, in February of 2018, Intel, which is one of Qualcomm's competitors in building this sort of hardware, demonstrated a 5G antenna that would fit on a laptop. But... It was very badly concealed in a massive, ugly, and completely unnecessary kickstand that looked totally unnatural. Kind of like an awkwardly shaped shark fin that they'd glued to a laptop for some reason. And I couldn't really see anyone using this in real life. But this was a proof of concept, so it wasn't intended to be a real product. And part of the point in presenting it, I think, was to show their potential customers four 5G antennas that they were ahead of Qualcomm, because it was a whole lot more svelte than the big overhead projector thing that Qualcomm carted around the year before. Recently, though, on July 23rd, 2018, Qualcomm showed the press a collection of hardware components that should, if put into production, allow for the development of 5G-capable smartphones. These components are smaller than a penny, they are thin enough to fit inside of an iPhone 10, and they include an antenna module system that allows devices to access both millimeter wave and sub-6 gigahertz wave frequencies. Having that combination is important, as at the moment, there are out of necessity two types of 5G being rolled out. The first type is the hardcore, full-throttle, super-high-wavelength version that is frail as hell, but crazy speedy. I'll get into just how speedy in a moment. And the second is faster than what is currently available using 4G, but it's also more reliable and less flimsy than the full-on maximized 5G frequency. The theoretical high speed for 5G networks, depending on who you ask, is somewhere between 20 to 30 gigabits per second. Now I've seen numbers claiming as high as 50 gigabits per second, but the consensus within this space either way seems to be that you will be lucky to achieve 5 gigabits per second at top speed in most real world cases. And you'll be more likely most of the time to achieve something like 1.4 gigabits per second, which honestly, is still ridiculously fast. For context, that means you should be able to download a full season of a TV show in just a few seconds on your phone. And that's if it's the super high quality version. Plain old HD shows would download so quickly that you would not even notice the difference between downloading them and just live streaming them bit by bit. They would just be available. The slower but more reliable version of 5G is predicted to average about a third of that speed, somewhere around half a gigabit per second, which is around 400 to 500 megabits per second. So part of the innovation here is scaling that monster hardware down to something that will fit into a wireless router or smartphone. Part of the innovation is making use of multiple antennas, so you can pick up multiple types of 5G alongside 4G and 3G, just in case you need to degrade to those in certain situations. Part of the innovation is arranging the antennas appropriately within the device so that the hand holding your smartphone does not block all of these signals at once, which is a real concern with this type of signal, And part of the innovation is blending all of that with a modem and other components that can handle those types of data transfer speeds, and work with parallel technologies like multi-antenna towers and self-contained beam-forming, steering, and tracking technologies that, when combined, make it far more likely that the waves will make it from cell tower or modem to your phone by bouncing those signals off of walls, by flipping between antennas without any noticeable lag, and by algorithmically switching between networks to find the right blend of fast and reliable. This technology has been predicted to arrive on the consumer market, most prominently in smartphones, in 2020. But in some countries, like South Korea... And in some cities within the US, the technology is expected to arrive sometime in 2019, and with pieces of the network in place and partially available for very limited use cases by the end of 2018. The technology will initially be released for some very specific use cases that play to its strengths and which play down its weaknesses. We'll be seeing some mobile hotspots that utilize the technology early on, and some higher end smartphones as well. But availability for the service, even if you have the right phone for it, will be severely limited, limited only to major cities at first, and even then, mostly inside of certain buildings within those cities during the initial rollout. This will allow those companies running these services to install some of their initial infrastructure in an enclosed, controllable environment and to tweak it appropriately. And it should present a testing ground for people who have a 5G phone and who want to see what all the fuss is about. I am guessing it will also see some early use inside of event spaces like stadiums and theaters to increase the amount of bandwidth on offer. And again, to present the concept to a larger number of people in a public space. So they'll know why they should want to have it at home, at their office, and on their phone. It makes the case for why they should update their phone, even if the old one is still working just fine. So there's definitely a marketing component to this roadmap. Before 5G can be rolled out more extensively, though, a lot of new infrastructure will need to be built including tens or hundreds of thousands of towers and signal repeaters. The optimal situation for this type of frequency is direct line of sight. So if you imagine how much hardware would be necessary to ensure that your device has direct line of sight to a cell tower or signal repeater the majority of the time, that gives you a decent idea of how much construction and upgrading the phone networks of the world will be doing in the coming years. Now the upside to that is because so many networks in so many places will be building so much of the same or similar infrastructure around the same time the prices of these components will likely go down which will in turn increase the speed of the rollout it's also possible that competition between networks to be able to claim To have the most extensive 5G network will encourage large early investments, which will amp up the service even before most people have a means of accessing it. The antennas will be limited only to high-end smartphones at first, after all, so it could be that by the time most of us have access to this network, it's already fairly well fleshed out. More invisibly, we will also see some more structural benefits from this frequency, which contains a built-in M-to-M, or machine-to-machine communication protocol, which can allow, for instance, giant car manufacturing machines to communicate with each other instantly, and without having to translate everything they want to convey through typical human channels, the internet that's optimized for other human-focused purposes first. It's also likely that we will see Autonomous car companies and similar industries investing in this technology heavily, as many people in that space have been more or less building and biding their time, waiting for this moment, for this technology, before they can move forward and achieve the type of tech that they want to move to market. Being able to transmit so much information so quickly, although it may only seem like a nice increase over what was already there, That could change a great deal in terms of our overall technological capabilities. I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. The entire modern mobile internet, with all the apps, all the social networks, all the games, and sending photographs, and streaming music, and watching videos, and storing things in the cloud, that was enabled by late 3G and 4G technologies. Without those upgrades to what already existed, what technically did the same thing, only slower much of the media ecosystem, the world we live in, would not exist. The only real difference between throwing a bullet and firing it from a gun is the speed at which that bullet moves. But the speed difference makes a world of difference. Throwing a bullet is a radically different thing from firing one in terms of outcome. And the same is true here moving data fast enough with sufficient throughput and so little lag that it may as well not exist and making all of that accessible anywhere, wirelessly. That could change the whole ballgame. If you saw the movie Ready Player One, or if you've ever seen any film in which there's immersive virtual reality being used by lots of people for lots of broad use cases, you understand part of the promise of this sort of bandwidth availability upping the speed of data transfer between 10 and 100 times what it is today, as this upgrade seems likely to do, will allow us to transmit a lot of data per second, with very little lag to anyone, anywhere, within the range of this wireless network, which could be quite expansive. That means potentially gigabytes worth of data every second, containing information about graphics, locations within a virtual space, and even things like haptics, touch-based info, that at the moment is generally limited to rumbles in your controller when you fire a weapon or crash your car inside a game. The potential of being able to increase that data trickle into a deluge means, for instance making a virtual world with multi-sensory interaction capabilities. Not just your eyes and ears, not just things you can see and hear, but also what you feel, what you smell at a very granular level. That all becomes possible. You could train soldiers in an ultra-realistic virtual combat scenario where getting hit actually hurts. You could watch pornography where the action becomes real experiential action. You could allow a specialist surgeon in Bangkok to work on a patient in Utah in real time using robotic hands that follow her movements with remarkable precision and accuracy, allowing her to use her skills augmented further by the robotic arms that keep her movements perfectly steady, but also allowing her to make in-the-moment decisions based on what she sees with perfect visual resolution through her surgical VR goggles. Autonomous cars could collect gallons of data and share that data with all of the other cars on the road instantaneously, creating a functional mesh of vehicles, each of them learning from each other and able to move as a swarm, as a smart herd, rather than each one trying to figure out all of the other's motivations and intentions from afar, wasting processing power, trying to predict and respond. Drones could become real-world avatars for each of us. Serving as stand-ins in class if we're sick or on a trip to Machu Picchu. We could take that trip, we could take many vacations, through the eyes of these gadgets, perhaps owning our own, perhaps renting from a squadron, using some kind of drone share system. So when one drone needs to be charged, another will seamlessly take its place, allowing us to experience things we might otherwise not be able to experience, either because of some physical impairment or because of financial or priority-based constraints. And again, some of those haptic innovations might come into play here. You might be able to feel as if you are where this drone is, as it collects data and transmits it to you. A great deluge of it, bucketfuls of it every second. The Internet of Things, currently limited to relatively low speeds, low power, and low rates of transmission, could grow very quickly. The possible use cases exploding. Digital picture frames replaced with live, super high-resolution feeds from a rainforest or the beach. Our smart TVs funneling nearly unlimited data wirelessly, presenting ultra-high-resolution interactive live TV that's delivered via 5G signal. One interesting use case that I think could represent a sea change in a lot of industries beyond its own is what's rumored to be happening with the next Xbox console. Word on the street is that Microsoft will release a newer, faster, more powerful Xbox to replace their current line relatively soon. But will also, alongside that, release a cloud-based console with less expensive and powerful hardware built into it, but which plugs into the cloud. So all the processing, all the generating of graphics happens in a server farm somewhere on the other side of the world. And that information, the graphics, the moves that your character on screen makes after you push a button, that is delivered to your console via the internet so quickly that you don't even notice that it wasn't done locally on the machine in your home. It's instant. So it would be like Microsoft has a warehouse full of the most powerful video game consoles available, and you control one of them, or more of them potentially, from your home. Their consoles, all those miles away, are plugged into your TV or laptop screen. Your controller at your home sends signals to their distant console, So your mini console would serve as an access point for all of those gaming resources rather than containing those gaming resources itself. Mentally extrapolate on that concept a bit, and you may, like me, wonder if this same model might work for other types of devices as well. Rather than cramming super high-end computer chips into all of our phones, what if we could use our phones primarily as access points for computing resources that are located elsewhere? If you worked in a space where you knew you would have constant access to a 5G network all day every day, and you were offered a smartphone of the same quality and polish and finish as the highest-end iPhone or Android phone available, but that phone was just a box with a massive battery and some antennas, more or less, and a nice screen, which allowed it to use far less energy and overheat less and to have a whole lot more energy in the battery... So that in practice, you would have days worth of battery life on a single charge and even more computing power than before, because it could reach out into the internet via this 5G tunnel and take as much as it needs when it needs it. If that was available, would you take that offer? The only practical difference between that phone and the phone that you have in your pocket today would be that the processing that would usually be done by your phone's internal hardware would instead be done by a computer located somewhere else, and your phone would simply receive the output of that computer. But other than that, it would present that data in exactly the same way. And again, without latency, without any lag. I think some people would take that offer. More power and a massively better battery. Maybe few people would take the risk at first because the utility would be limited to those with always-on access to the highest speed networks, but I'm guessing that the number would increase as the 5G network became more fleshed out and as other objects in our lives became less powerful and more connected in the same way. We could reach a point where all of our devices are plugged in to literal supercomputers, stored in giant warehouses, and all we ever have to do is tap into them when we need them, for whatever we need them for, at whatever scale of power we need in the moment for our particular shell of a device. It's a compelling concept, especially as we run into hard limitations on the size of microprocessor components and hard limitations on our battery technologies. This is the sort of thing that could allow us to carry around what amounts to a piece of paper made out of some unbreakable plastic-like material that serves as a screen and a set of transparent antennas built into it, and very little more than that. We wouldn't need much more because so much would be done outside of the device. It opens up a lot of possibilities. Now, all of that said... We do still have a good long while before this network is fleshed out enough to know for sure whether it will be the innovation of the decade or a big flop. A bit like IMAX theaters. Definitely neat and interesting in their own way, but not something that changed cinema in any serious way. Just one niche option among many and not very relevant to most people most of the time. There are also concerns that the rollout of this technology could widen the gap between urban and rural dwellers who are already fairly starkly divided by many things, including their access to today's high-speed internet. If this massive change does happen, it will happen in the big cities first. And if past experience is any indication of what would happen next, it's unlikely that people living in the boonies would get practical access to this newer, better frequency anytime soon. Maybe never. There are still huge swaths of the United States where there's no cellular signal at all. The likelihood that this rollout would be any different than the four plus network generations that came before is not high. What we could see though are smaller towns with affordable housing and a low cost of living investing in this type of infrastructure independently to attract remote workers. I mean, I would be tempted by that kind of thing, especially if the poll is that they've got this super high-speed service, plus there are not millions of people using these towers for that service. So it'll be even faster, potentially, than what they have in Manhattan or San Francisco. And you'll be able to afford a house rather than a broom closet. That would be a pretty compelling argument for some people in some fields, I think. Some cities, like LA, are preparing themselves for this rollout by putting regulations into place that require companies building 5G infrastructure to build equal infrastructure in underserved areas. So if you want to build in Bel Air, you also need to build in South LA. One other major shift that we will see as a consequence of this, I think, and this isn't a huge leap, as it's already happening, leading up to the change over to 5G, is that mobile data service providers will increasingly focus on becoming not just big dumb pipes through which data is delivered, but also media companies unto themselves. Verizon recently bowed out of a bidding war for Comcast and Time Warner. They'd been looking to add those media behemoths to their current stockpile of media companies, which already include AOL and Yahoo!, But they're apparently now in talks with Apple and or Google to provide unique content that they can offer on their service. So it would seem that at least some major service companies are attempting to stack the deck in their favor by becoming not just the company from which you buy your monthly data package, but also a sort of Netflix or Spotify, a company that delivers and perhaps produces content to be served up on their data streams. Now, that could become a real concern if net neutrality rules are not enforced or if they disappear elsewhere like they recently have here in the United States. Because, for instance, Verizon could lower the speed, lower the quality of music or movies not made by them or companies that they own on their service. They could negatively impact the quality of their competition's offerings to encourage people to use their media services instead. This is something that has already happened in the past when net neutrality rules have not been enforced. We will see whether or not that ends up being a real concern. This could be a flash-in-the-pan moment where mobile service companies are flailing around looking for any advantage in the lead-up to what could be a pretty vicious fight for customers as 5G rolls out worldwide. But it is one more thing to be watching for as 5G plans become available and as more pieces are moved around on the mobile industry chessboard. This 5G thing, then, seems like it's finally going to happen after years of speculation and letdown. And it could prove to be a significant change in not just technology, but society because of all the secondary effects and potential secondary effects of a revolution within a structural backbone piece of technology upon which we have all come to rely on in countless, often invisible ways. That said, it could prove to be just another upgrade or a shift that's impressive, but not as relevant to the masses as is currently being predicted. Many of these predictions are being made after all, by companies that have some stake in this technology doing well, either because they are developing the components or the devices that will house those components, or because they are offering the service itself. So it's worth staying optimistic and considering the possibilities leading up to the launch of 5G, but it's also worth keeping your expectations moderated lest you expect a whole new world to emerge overnight, but only end up getting more immersive, haptic advertisements and 3D spam messages in your newly virtual reality-enabled inbox. (laughs) ¶¶ The book that I'd like to recommend today is actually a book series that I was very skeptical about for a very long time. I think I read the first book of this series, which is The Gunslinger, way back when I was in high school, I want to say. It's been ages, and I read it, and I really didn't particularly care for it. I'm not a huge Stephen King fan, and this is a book by Stephen King. He's a great writer. His genre is just not usually my favorite, but I was encouraged to check it out again, and I'm glad that I did. I read the revised version of the first book. Now I am on book five. And I'm already dreading the moment when the series will end. It is charming and delightful. It is a weird combination of not a whole lot of horror, but a little bit of horror, but mostly fantasy mixed with a bit of weird science fiction. It's kind of set in a world where there's a lot of pseudo-magical things that don't quite make sense, but then kind of make sense within the internal logic of the world that it's set in. There's kind of a multiple-dimension time travel component to it. There's kind of a weird situation where there's post-apocalyptic worlds where the knights of the round table are cowboys, and there's remnants of things that happen in our world. And at the end of the day, it's just a really compelling, interesting, fun story that takes you in a lot of strange directions that you're not quite expecting. And if you're like me and you typically prefer the type of science fiction, for instance, that is based on reality, hard science fiction, the author took the time to figure out how these things in the story would actually work, this type of fantasy can kind of drive you crazy because there is an internal logic to it that doesn't make sense based on the logic of the real world. But Stephen King kind of won me over with this one and made me accept it. And I actually kind of like the bizarre rules of this world that he's built at this point. And over and over again, and in a lot of different ways, he tends to defy certain tropes and cliches about numerous different genres, which is an impressive accomplishment as well. So if you're looking for something interesting to read, consider picking up The Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I would recommend picking up The Gunslinger first, that's the first book, but powering past it, it's a relatively short book, and it's not super representative of the rest of the series. So if you do give it a shot, commit to reading at least the first two books before you decide that it is or is not your cup of tea. You can find out more about me and my work at Colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can find my tour dates and get tickets for my upcoming tour at becomingtour.com, and you can find me all over the social networks at Colin is my name. Feel free to say hello. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.